sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Welcome to my study. Please uh, do come in, have a seat. All the books around you are those used to uh, research our show. And the individual to my right here, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for uh, any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from the sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I hope that all our listeners are enjoying their 2020. We've been engaged in various improvements and updates for the year, going through the library and finding lots of books out of order and a few needing repair. Lots of sorting and rearranging. Yes, and uh, Mrs. Carswell's decided to uh, celebrate the new year by scrambling all the furniture in her room. I just arrange things to be more conducive to my daily routines. It's something I do every year, even if it's not always pretty. I thought you were uh, pleased with the results. I like the placement. It's just the floor. And that's probably why the carpet was there in the first place. I just wish I could read it. Mrs. Carswell's moving frenzy exposed some amorphous dark marks she uh, believes are letters. There's a purposeful quality to them. It means something. I'd just rather know if it's good or bad. I presume that has something to do with all the uh, foreign dictionaries you've squirreled away in your room? The one thing I know is it's not English. You could just move the rug back. That'd be like putting a letter back in the mailbox after it's opened. Uh, On a more practical note, we're also doing some cleanup outside for the new year. Mr. Petrovich has been very curious about the bees. That's the gentleman hired for the cleanup. There was some dead brush around the house that needed clearing. I found it picturesque, but we've gotten letters from the city... I just wish he'd tell me when he's going to be burning brush so I can prepare the hives. Smoke isn't the best thing for bees. That shouldn't be a problem after today. I told him to stop burning anything in the afternoon. I prefer to burn it myself at night when it's uh, more dramatic. Well, he's very nice otherwise. Quite helpful. I thought at first he was humpbacked and was considering keeping him on, but it seems more that he just periodically adopts odd postures. At first I thought he might even be a gypsy, but uh, as it turns out, he's just Serbian. I didn't notice his posture, but his whistling is lovely. Of course, there are Serbian gypsies. It's always that one tune. It's a haunting melody. The same thing all day. I wonder if I might request a gypsy from the employment service. I can imagine keeping him on longer if he were a gypsy, especially with the hump or or faux hump, whatever it is. You know, I almost bought an antique uh, gypsy wagon at an auction once. I I wonder if he'd be willing to live on the property if I obtained one of those uh, gypsy wagons for him to live in. He might not want to live in a wagon. A a gypsy wagon. It would mean a longer term of employment, more money. 
I'm sure I could find other projects for him. I could run a water line out to his campsite to make it more amenable. And he could uh, cook on a campfire. He could cut down that uh, dead oak and use that for his fires. I wonder if he whistles at night. I'd like to open my window and listen. I think I would feel safe doing that. I can imagine the music wafting in an open window and the smell of smoke and grease as he cooked himself a bit of bacon for his dinner. He wouldn't do that. What? Cook bacon. He's vegetarian. How would you know that? He told me. He doesn't eat meat. I'd rather you not talk to the help. I wonder if he's aware we're listening when he whistles. <laughs> anyway, th- his last day is Friday. Uh, I, I think we better s- just start the show. Episode 40, Walled Up Alive. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a number of uh, monthly rewards, including the aforementioned book. And um, I'll have uh, more about Patreon at the end of the episode and I hope you might consider making a donation to the show, as did one of our listeners in Sweden, one who actually suggested the topic for our current episode. His head was twisted over his shoulder, watching me as I piled brick upon brick. With each stone I put into position, his eyes took on a look of increasing terror and torture. He made little sounds in his throat. Help me, someone! Help me! Please! Please! Andre! You're hearing a bit of Edgar Allan Poe's 1846 story, The Cask of Amontillado, dramatized in 1954 on the Hall of Fantasy radio show. In the tale, an Italian nobleman, Fortunato, walls up a fellow aristocrat by the name of Montresor in revenge for some unnamed indignity. Fortunato accomplishes this by luring his prey into a wine cellar ostensibly to taste some Amontillado, a, a particularly rare sherry that he stores there. Uh, having begun the evening with generous samplings of other wines, Fortunato has seen to it that Montresor is uh, sufficiently drunk as to be easily shackled to the wall before the stones are mortared in place. The story's been adapted a number of times. As Edgar Allan Poe unfolds his tales of terror. In 1962's anthology film, Tales of Terror, starring Vincent Price, Roger Corman mashes up the cast of Montillado with Poe's Black Cat, placing the unfortunate feline in the wall along with the uh, inebriated nobleman. Corman had previously borrowed the... uh, walled up alive motif for 1961's The Pit and the Pendulum, which uh, likewise was... uh, Starring Vincent Price, truly a master of the macabre. Corman's uh, mix-and-match approach to Poe rises naturally out of the writer's obsessive repetition of certain themes. The walled up black cat 
and the uh, seemingly living murder victim making his presence known from beneath the floorboards and the telltale heart both echo the uh, fate of the uh, walled-up Italian in the wine cellar. And the element of claustrophobia suggested in these is common to Poe's obsession with being buried alive, uh, explored in a number of his stories, uh, Berenice, uh, the fall of the House of Usher, and, of course, the premature burial. Well, now, no one is walled up alive in these other stories. Their fate is really only different in terms of horizontal or uh, vertical orientation and the uh, relative spaciousness of their confinement. In this show, however, we're going to focus specifically on what's called immurement, uh, the Latin term for being walled up alive from the uh, word muros for wall. These themes in Poe, the notion of a deadly confinement in crypt-like spaces, is endemic to uh, Gothic literature. Not only dungeons, but also the uh, penitential cells of uh, nuns and monks were often used as settings. English writers who shaped this genre reflected their country's uh, troubled relationship with Catholicism regarding uh, monastic and ecclesiastic settings and characters with a peculiarly uh, Protestant mix of uh, horror and fascination. Particularly influential in the genre's early development, the uh, 1796 novel The Monk, for instance, features not only a lustful monk and wicked abbess, but also scenes of its heroine, Sister Agnes, clutching the corpse of an illegitimate baby born while she is confined in a convent crypt. Beyond these sorts of uh, wild literary imaginings, certain language and practices from actual monastic life uh, naturally do uh, suggest this idea of literal immurement. Um, the notion of the uh, monastic's uh, death to the outer world and a uh, discussion of uh, a life lived uh, within the walls, uh, so to speak. Various saints are described as subjecting themselves to uh, solitary lives in extravagantly small cells, having meager food passed through narrowed openings and doorways. It's all but literal immurement of the type Poe describes. And then, to uh, further strengthen these associations, there are the occasional uh, walled-up skeletons, like the uh, one discovered in Thornton Abbey in North Lincolnshire in 1722. According to an 1846 article in the uh, Royal Archaeological Institute's journal, Upon taking down an old wall there, they found a man with a candlestick, table, and book, who was supposed to have been immured. Tradition has always asserted that it was an abbot who suffered this punishment. Two candidates have suggested themselves as abbots who could have earned such a punishment. Uh, the article continues describing uh, one of these, that is, uh, Walter Moulton, the uh, 18th abbot, who died. But in what manner, by what death, I know not. He hath no obituary, as the other abbots have, and the place of his burial hath not been found. And the other is Thomas Gretham, the uh, 14th abbot, who was deposed in 1393. In a chronicle of the abbey's history, a page representing his tenure was torn out. In order, uh, as the note explains, to prevent scandal to the church. 
Gretham's ghost is today said to haunt the ruins of Thornton Abbey, and local folklore suggests he was a dabbler in the occult arts. This case is fairly exceptional in offering both a, a physical discovery of remains and written histories hinting at an actual crime or some uh, shady business. But most accounts of monastics punished by immurement arise strictly from the uh, literary imagination. For instance, in Walter Scott's 1808 poem, Marmion, which I mentioned in our Goblins episode, a nun is condemned to this fate for her unchastity. And now the blind old abbot rose to speak the chapter's doom. On those the wall was to enclose, alive within the tomb. In footnotes to this scene in the poem, Scott, rather matter-of-factly, reports that uh, this would have been a standard punishment for the crime described, citing the discovery of an immured nun in Coldingham Abbey in the Scottish Borders region. Uh, however, others who've looked into Scott's source for this uh, point out that the uh, chronology of the abbey's use by various male and female orders doesn't really support his interpretation, and that the skeleton in question was likely that of a monk interred vertically upon his death, as is sometimes done. Roughly a hundred years later, the Victorian adventure novelist H. Ryder Haggard, whom I mentioned in our uh, Victorian Mummies episode, made uh, similar assertions in footnotes commenting on an immurement scene in his 1893 book, Montezuma's Daughter. Lest such cruelty should seem impossible and unprecedented, the writer may mention that in the museum of the city of Mexico, he has seen the desiccated body of a young woman who was found immured in the walls of a religious building. With it is the body of an infant. Although the exact cause of her execution remains a matter of conjecture, there can be no doubt as to the manner of her death. For in addition to other evidences, the marks of the rope with which her limbs were bound in life are still distinctly visible. This uh, claim, which seems to have been based on some photos from an 1892 book called Mexico in Transition, hardly went uncontested. It uh, drew the ire of numerous Catholic writers and was argued extensively in a number of journals. Whether or not immurement was uh, commonly or actually ever used as a punishment within monastic communities, one reason the idea seems to have had such a force, particularly as a punishment for unchaste nuns, would be its echoing of stories associated with Rome's Vestal Virgins. These were a class of priestesses which from the 7th century BC to 394 AD were charged with maintaining the sacred fire of Vesta, goddess of hearth and family, and uh, thereby the uh, well-being of the entire Roman state. Should one of the virgins break her vow of chastity, the punishment was severe. Earlier, this uh, might have meant stoning or being drowned in the river, but Around uh, 600 BC, under the rule of uh, Priscus, uh, legendary fifth king of Rome, 
there were more dreadful consequences. According to the 1845 volume, Dictionary of Greek and Roman Antiquities. When condemned by the College of Pontiffs, she was stripped of her badges of office, was scourged, attired like a corpse, placed in a closed litter, born through the forum attended by her weeping kindred with all of the ceremonies of a real funeral to a rising ground called the Campus Shirilatus. That is uh, evil field uh, in English. And uh, there she was lowered into a small vault underground containing a couch, a lamp, and a table with a little food. This mode of execution, which was uh, de facto starvation, was devised as a sort of workaround to uh, a Roman law which stipulated that no blood of a Vestal Virgin could be shed. The uh, rationale for providing a meager ration of food, a couch, lamp, was so that the Virgin's place of death could be considered a habitable room, uh, that is, rather than a tomb, as it was forbidden to bury the Vestal Virgins within the city of Rome. Certainly, the Romans were not the first to adopt this form of execution. It was known to the Greeks as uh, Sophocles, in his play Antigone, has the uh, Theban king Creon execute Antigone by sealing him in a cave. And uh, in our uh, ancient necromancy episode, I uh, related a uh, Greek instance of immurement. It involves uh, Pausanias, king of Sparta, who led the uh, Greeks in victory over the Persians in uh, 479 BC, but then later began conspiring with the enemy. When the uh, traitor surreptitiously enters his uh, hometown of Lacedaemon, he's recognized and flees the gathering mob for sanctuary in the Temple of Athena. Again, because of a ban on shedding blood within this temple, the Spartans choose to simply brick him up inside, leaving him to starve. To add uh, insult to injury, it's said his mother was the one to lay the first brick. Even earlier than this, the uh, Neo-Assyrian Empire apparently made use of immurement. Around 800 BC, when Ashur-Nasir-Pal II ascended to the throne, he began ruthlessly exterminating his enemies. A uh, column carved in commemoration of the erection of his new palace boasts of his uh, vengeful techniques. I erected a wall in front of the great gate of the city. I flayed the chiefs and covered this wall with their skins. Some of them were walled in alive in the masonry. Others were impaled along the wall. I flayed a great number of them in my presence, and I clothed the wall with their skins. I collected their heads in the form of crowns, and their corpses I pierced and hung like garlands. By the Middle Ages, another legend had sprung up involving victims sealed within a cave like Antigone. It's the story of the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus, popularized by Gregory of Tours in the late 6th century. It's a sort of ancient version of Rip Van Winkle, in which seven devout Christians, after refusing to renounce their faith, retire to a cave to pray. The Emperor Decius has them sealed within the cave, where, rather than starve, they simply fall asleep for centuries. When their cave is broken open by a stranger seeking a place to pen up his cattle overnight, they awaken. Thinking they have slept hours, they send one of their party off to the market for food, 
but the ancient coins he attempts to spend lead to the truth of their situation being revealed. They rejoice that they have arisen in a time friendly to their Christian faith and abruptly die. And another medieval incident of immurement was made famous by its inclusion in Dante's Divine Comedy. The uh, treasonous Count of Pisa, Ugolino della Gerardesca, his sons and his grandsons appear in the Ninth Circle of Hell as a result of an actual incident in 1288 when he was accused of killing an archbishop's nephew. As a result, they are sealed into a tower to die of starvation. Dante has the sons eventually begging their father to allay his hunger in an unusual way. Father, our pain, they said, will lessen if you eat us. You are the one who clothed us with this wretched flesh. Later, the uh, father seems to uh, consider the proposition. And I, already going blind, groped over my brood, calling to them, though I had watched them die for two long days, and then the hunger had more power than even sorrow over me. Implying that he gave in to the uh, ghastly impulse to consume the corpses, giving Eredesca the nickname the Cannibal Count. The scene has often been portrayed in art as in Rodin's uh, sculpture, The Gates of Hell. There we go. A pleasant little song to help clear that image of a father eating the corpses of his dead kids and grandkids. Unfortunately, I must admit that this song happens to be about a woman being bricked up into a castle wall in Finland. I'll get to that story in a moment, but as our next topic is about a cluster of legends and ballads from Scandinavia and the Baltic states. I want to start with a case from Sweden, as this was the particular inspiration for our show, one suggested by listener Stefan Steinecke, who lives on the Swedish island of Gotland in its capital city, Visby. Uh, there you can find the uh, Jungfortunet, or Maiden's Tower, named, according to legend, for the unfortunate victim once sealed within. The story takes place in 1361 with Valdemar IV of Denmark setting his eyes on Gotland and its capital city. Before attempting his invasion, Valdemar slips into the city incognito to conduct a bit of uh, reconnaissance. In the process, he woos the beautiful daughter of a uh, haughty and unpopular jeweler by the name of Nils, a holder of the key to the city gates, which the daughter helps Valdemar obtain. Leaving Gotland with uh, promises to marry the young woman upon his return, he instead returns with an army that slaughters over 2,000 residents of Visby on the first day alone. Later, the people of Visby punish the daughter's complicity in this humiliating defeat by sealing her within the tower that came to bear her name. The uh, Finnish version of the story, uh, one that inspired the uh, ballad I played earlier, takes place around St. Olaf's Castle in Savonlinna. 
uh, fortress important in the defense of Finland from attacks by the Russians. In this tale, the daughter of the lord of the castle is seduced by a Russian. One night, as she slips out to unlock the gates for her lover, she finds him in the company of a huge Russian army of invaders. A terrible battle ensues during which her lover is killed and the Russians are driven off. For her presumed treachery, the maiden is sealed within one of the castle walls. When she dies, however, a rowan tree springs up by the wall. Its white blossoms in the song are said to symbolize her innocence in the whole affair or her uh, unwitting involvement, at least. And in Estonia, there are a number of sites with uh, legends of women likewise immured. One was said to have been uh, sealed within the walls of the bishop's castle in Hapsalu after having an affair with a member of the clergy there. She was said to have been able to enter the castle and be with her lover by disguising herself as a choir boy. But when this uh, subterfuge is discovered, her lover is thrown in prison and starved to death. She also starves to death, but uh, more claustrophobically. That is, she is sealed within a wall of the chapel. To this day, an apparition of the poor woman is said to appear on that wall every August when the moon is full. Another Estonian tale turns the uh, tables on this legend. In Kurosara Castle on Sarama Island, it is the male participant in an illicit affair who is sealed within a wall. Here, an actual skeleton was said to have been discovered in 1785, hidden in a secret cavity and seated behind a large table. When touched, it crumbled into dust. Legend says that the remains were that of an inquisitor monk sent to Sarama during the turbulence of Estonia's Reformation. It seems a Protestant knights hostile to the Catholic inquisitor arranged for a local woman to seduce him. When the affair came to light, the woman's sentence merely saw her confined to a nunnery, while the uh, supposedly celibate Catholic found himself confined behind brick and mortar. There is also a town in southeastern Estonia by the name of Pulova, said to derive from the word for knee. A local legend provides a rather uh, chilling explanation for this name, one that involves the town's 13th century church of Mary or Maria. According to some accounts, it is not the uh, Blessed Virgin that gives the church its name, but a girl by the name Maria who gave the church her life, that is, was sealed into the walls as the ultimate sacrifice one that would for centuries protect the edifice from assaults by the devil. Oh, and the uh, town's name is supposed to be derived from this uh, self-sacrificing Maria, whose body was said to have been interred in a position of eternal kneeling devotion. Even without granting any uh, historical truth to such a story, uh, even as a fiction, the tale is shocking for having been woven around a Christian church. But it's not unique in this. Something similar is told of a companion to St. Columba, the 6th century Irish abbot and missionary to Scotland. It involves his companion, whose name was Odron, or sometimes Oran. According to an old Irish life of St. Columba, 
When it came to founding a church on the Scottish island of Iona in the Inner Hebrides, the saint was unable to do so as devils interfered with the process. Something more was needed. He then said to his followers, It is well for us that our roots should go under the ground here. It is permitted to you that some of you should go under the earth, here or under the mold of the island to consecrate it. Odin rose up readily, and this he said, If I should be taken, saith he, I am ready for that. And Columba responded that he shall have that reward. And so Odin was buried alive within the foundation of the church. There are uh, several versions of the story which add a sort of coda to the tale. The um, Welsh travel writer Thomas Pennant recorded a version with this ending when he visited the island in 1772. At the end of three days, Columba had the curiosity to take a farewell look at his old friend and cause the earth to be removed. To the surprise of all beholders, Odrin started up and began to reveal the secrets of his prison house and particularly declared that all that had been said of hell was a mere joke. This dangerous impiety so shocked Columba that he instantly ordered the earth to be flung in again. In certain regions, there's an expression derived from this story. Earth, earth on Odrin's eye, lest he say more. Which is something said of someone who's uh, yammering is likely to get them in trouble. <laughs> This is a Hungarian song called, uh, in English, uh, Kelemen the Stonemason. It tells of the construction of a fortress, an actual site in what is now Romania in the town of Deva. After a series of initial failures and collapses, it's determined that one of the twelve stonemasons working on the project must sacrifice his bride to the well-being of the building. The choice will be determined by the first woman to visit the site. And as it turns out, that uh, honor falls to the wife of the unfortunate Calumet. This tale is told in many versions, is extremely popular throughout southeastern Europe, from Hungary to Greece to uh, Georgia. In Albania, it's called the uh, Tale of Rosova, the less fortunate wife of two stonemasons attempting construction of Rosova Castle in northwestern Albania. The choice between two wives here is also determined by the first to arrive at the work site. The first to arrive has just given birth, but nonetheless accepts her fate, asking only that the masons leave exposed her right eye with which to watch her newborn son, her right foot to rock his cradle, right breast to nurse him, and right hand to stroke his hair. One last note, and I mention this primarily to recommend an extraordinary film and uh, to give you a taste of its lovely soundtrack, which you can hear now. (laughs) 
Soviet Armenian director Sergei Parachinov's 1985 film, The Legend of Surum Fortress, is based on a 19th century literary reworking of a Georgian folktale in which the protagonist must sacrifice himself through immurement in order to save the uh, crumbling Surum castle. The story, which uh, might be a bit hard to follow in any literal way in this film, is told through a series of stunning dreamlike tableaus, much like uh, Parachinov's better-known The Color of Pomegranates. I'll post a clip from uh, the film on the uh, Patreon site for those curious about such things. And it's not just uh, obscure structures on the outskirts of the uh, European West to which uh, tales like this are attached. The city walls that sit around Copenhagen until 1920 supposedly were initially unstable until some measures were taken, which we'll uh, hear about from the 1892 book Strange Survivals by Sabine Baring Gold. They took a little innocent girl, placed her in a chair by a table, and gave her playthings and sweetmeats. While she thus sat enjoying herself, twelve masons built an arch over her, which, when completed, they covered with earth to the sound of drums and trumpets. By this process, the walls were made solid. Baring Gold and others uh, mention also that in Bremen, when in uh, 1812 the city walls were being reconstructed, 15 tiny coffins were found to be embedded in the masonry. Though these proved to be empty, earlier in 1686, when the city gate was refurbished, a similarly uh, diminutive coffin was discovered, this one containing a child's bones. Stories of the immurement of children are also told in relation to several German castles. In the uh, 1855 book, Legends and Folktales from Lower Saxony, authors Georg Schambach and Wilhelm Müller uh, relate the story of uh, Plessa Castle near Göttingen. Hoping to ensure that the fortress would be unconquerable, its builders sought a child to immure in the structure, and the book explains how that went. For a long time, no willing person could be found, but finally, a woman from Weyershausen sold her deaf and dumb three-year-old child for 303 fenning coins. On the day that the child was to be entombed, it was suddenly able to speak and said, Mother's breast was softer than a pillow, but Mother's heart was harder than a stone. And with that, the child was entombed. A tale of a child walled into the foundation of Hennenberg Castle in Thuringia has the father watching as his child, bribed to sit still with a bit of cake, is entombed, but with a um, satisfying twist from uh, Baring Gold's strange survivals again. When the last stone was put in, the child screamed in the wall and the man, overwhelmed with self-reproach, lost his hold, fell from the ladder and broke his neck. Thanks to writers like Grimm, this tradition is particularly well documented in Germany where at least the fear of the practice, if not the practice itself, persisted into the 19th century. Grimm mentions the construction of a bridge in Halle in 1843, 
where the local populace spread rumors that the builders were prowling about looking for a child to sacrifice. The similar stories are told of events then recent in the uh, 1855 book, Bavarian Legends and Customs, including one in which a schoolteacher seen carrying a rope through the town causes a panic among townspeople believing he's been tasked with capturing a child to entomb in a railroad bridge near the town of Reichenbach. While uh, children for sacrifice may be a bit more difficult to obtain and such stories a bit uh, more difficult to swallow, uh, similar animal sacrifices are uh, frequently and plausibly documented. Presumably uh, less efficacious than living children, animals will, however, answer for those uh, smaller scale problems of the uh, farmer or homeowner. Uh, Grimm notes uh, some of these superstitions. A long spell of good weather can be brought on by walling in a cock, and a cow's running can be prevented by bringing up a blind dog alive under the stable door. In the case of a village church, usually a lamb, but sometimes a pig or a horse might be buried under the altar. This was uh, particularly the case in Scandinavia. The spirit of the animal might emerge from its hiding place in the church tower or elsewhere, to discipline members of the congregation who caused any sort of disharmony or brought shame upon the church. It might also wander the grounds at night or appear to the gravedigger to betoken the imminent death of a child in the congregation. In England, the same function was usually performed by an immured dog, which could be seen lurking about the church in the shape of a shadowy black dog known as a church grim. Along with combating the evil influence of the devil or witches, the church grim might toll the church bells at midnight to herald an imminent death or appear at funerals, giving clues in its appearance or manner as to whether the deceased was fated to heaven or hell. Well, all this is fine and good for uh, folkloric worlds of previous centuries, but Surely there are some stories of immurement closer to home. You know, what about one from Houston, Texas, circa 2015? A uh, final story for our episode. We begin with breaking news just into the newsroom. Medical examiners have identified bones found in the walls of a home in the Heights last year, confirming it is Mary Cerruti, who lived there and was last seen back in 2015. It's a gruesome discovery. It's a bizarre tale. You heard right. Human remains behind the wall. Moving in, found the remains. Investigators believe she had died in a crawl space of the attic. What is your emergency? Uh, so it's... I just called to report this. I didn't know exactly how to do it, but I just moved into this house. I'm renting it. Uh, just moved in a couple days ago, and I found between two of the walls, uh, I found a human skeleton. So I didn't know exactly who to call. <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. One moment, sir. The medical examiner believes she was in the attic when she fell through a broken floorboard and got trapped. Her death was a tragic accident. A uh, Houston Chronicle story from March 6, 2017 added an additional grisly detail, noting that... 
animals had disturbed the skeleton. Whether picked apart by rats or not, uh, couldn't Miss Cerruti's immured body have functioned as a sort of foundation sacrifice to preserve her home? As it turns out, her 1930s bungalow at the time of her 2015 disappearance was the last holdout among many older bungalows in the neighborhood, which had already been purchased and raised by a developer building apartments on the lots. Naturally, offers and negotiations for the home were derailed by Cerruti's mysterious disappearance, so for the following years, the house was protected from the grasp of greedy developers. Sadly, with the mortgage unpaid, liens taken out on the property were eventually settled, the house sold, and the property bulldozed a few years later in September 2018. So, as it turns out, this was not the uh, proper procedure for offering a uh, foundation sacrifice. Live and learn, I suppose. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have an opportunity to share episodes with friends who might like this same sort of thing. We particularly appreciate anyone leaving reviews as these are the uh, best way to raise the show's profile on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you have left a review, by all means let me know and I'll give you a little shout out. Um, our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with uh, show notes with uh, plenty of images and video and links to any uh, film, trailers, or media used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for this show. On the website, you can also find our donor link. Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special handcrafted mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Special thanks to our latest subscribers, and I hope I get all your names right here, Tim Birkebeck, Patricia Elgard, Tony, Gwen, Kathy Kelly, Deb Fate Mental, Matt Gerduk, Dennis Bashaw, Mike Bennett, and Jennifer Linton. And many thanks also to uh, Baltimore B55 and Wormfight for their very kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.